0: My name is Jesse Robinson. I'm a pastor here at, in Delva Grace. Um, We're in the midst of a a sermon series on an advent that we're looking at the, the the four virtues, uh, that we believe that Jesus has brought at Christmas. And last week we looked at hope and this week we're going to look at joy. At joy. If you've got a, Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, we'll start in verse 12, verse 12, do I have access to iPad, great, we alright, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. For rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or Do you join me in prayer as we pray God's blessing upon the reading and preaching of this word. Father in heaven, we do come to you and we ask that you would be with us. Thank you that you promised to be with us. Thank you that you meet us in the midst of our suffering. And so Lord, would you, we hear your joy this Sunday. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you have a pen or a highlighter, I'm going to invite you to to highlight verse 13, okay, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, this is the core of this passage, Um, rejoice and be glad insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, so I'm going to put it a different way, the surprise is that when we share Christ's sufferings, a spirit-filled glory and joy is our share. The surprise is that when we share Christ's sufferings, a spirit of glory and joy is our share. Now we have three points. Um, it's going to take us, we're going to have to do a little bit of biblical spade work in order to get up to speed, um, but, but just hang with me. Our first point, our first point we're going to look at is the surprise of suffering. The surprise of suffering. Matt Teague still remembers that surprise. It knocked him face down on a white-tiled hospital floor. His wife, Nicole, was 34, the mother of their two children. And yet the doctor was very clear. He said, the cancer is everywhere. And that describes the surprise. He says, I was in shock and stayed there a long time. Suffering surprises us. Diagnoses, deaths, divorce... In an instant, life is not the same. Car wrecks, miscarriages, layoffs, they surprise and they disorient us. What do we do now? The surprise of the pandemic, right? One week it was normal, and the next week we're imprisoned in the comfort and the anxiety of our homes. We were too modern, too medical for such a moral threat. You remember the surprise. We don't tell each other the truth about dying as a people, Teague reflects. No one ever told me the truth about it, not once. And when it happened to my beloved, I lost my footing. Suffering knocks us off balance, and some of us never get up. Suffering is always surprised, and yet there's compelling evidence that it's more surprising than ever. A cadre of iconoclastic social scientists have noted the flagging resilience of modern Americans, the stomach suffering. Suffering surprise seems to be actually a feature of modern life, not a bug. And not a few blame the loss of meaning endemic in suffering, right? Past generations and cultures, they had paradigms and understandings of what suffering was for. But secularism, the thing that we live in, has no such thing. Suffering is meaningless if we're just a bunch of molecules with no special origin or destiny. Anthropologist and psychologist James Davies explains that secular moderns have exclusively negative models for suffering. Right? Suffering is a psychological or a physical discomfort that should be avoided at all costs. It's this ethos, he says, that has actually tripled antidepressant use in the last 30 years. Antidepressants are the most prescribed medication in the U.S. today, and the most prescribed medication in U.S. medical history. It's one way to deal with the sting and surprise of suffering. Pope Peter counters in verse 12, he says... Beloved, do not be surprised. The Christian view is different. Don't be surprised. Be ready. Be prepared for it. And the scriptures are chock full of suffering. They have a clear-eyed honesty of the horrors of human suffering. And yet they are neither stoic nor sentimental. Grief, sorrow, ash heaps, sackcloth, imprecations, That's how suffering is handled in the scripture. They're far more creative than... Who amongst us has sackcloth ready in their closet? Right? I can't believe in a God that allows suffering. Have you heard that? It's a common protest. But on that logic, we should actually quit belief in humanity, too. We have more evidence that humanity allows suffering than God. Indeed, humanity perpetrate suffering on each other. Empirically, we bear the burden of guilt, which is actually what the Bible says. We're at fault for suffering, not God. The irony is is that if there is no God, there can really be no suffering either. Suffering presumes the baseline good to fall short of, but if there is no creator, there is no baseline. There is no good. Just life is just life. You shouldn't expect anything more or less. But the Bible presumes a God. It presumes a good. It presumes suffering is real. And it's going to happen in a fallen world. Do not be surprised, Peter says. Are you surprised by suffering? Verse 13 of Siani. It says, But rejoice insofar as you share Sufferings. Now, maybe we can handle the not surprise but rejoice. How do we get there? How do we get there? That's surprising. Let me explain the the prevailing narratives about suffering that Peter was dealing with. You had Greco Roman culture that was deeply influenced by Stoicism. And for the Stoics, God was not a person, He was not personal. He was rather everything in the universe, this kind of force. And providence showed God's will. And so they preempted suffering by surrendering any kind of hopes or fears. It's better just not to want anything. That way you're satisfied with whatever the universe gives you. Emotions were suspect to the Stoic. Their philosophers counseled detachment, just very similarly to how Buddhism does. It's better to not get too close to anyone or anything. Now, the Jews also had a positive view of suffering. They interpreted their sufferings, their exile, as God's punishment on their unfaithfulness and their sins. Yet, they believe by suffering righteously, they could atone for their sins. Their sufferings would bring redemption. Now, on the backdrop of those two views of suffering, I hope you see that the Christian answer to suffering was truly surprising and revolutionary. Unlike the Greeks, it proclaimed that God is a person, and that he can feel. He actually feels for us in our sufferings. The God of the Bible is not some distant deism. Deism doesn't really care about what you're experiencing. The God of the Bible is close, and it knows you. He knows you. And yet, unlike the Jews, Jesus comes and He's. He has an incredible message to say, hey, not only do we feel your suffering, we will suffer for your suffering. The Christian gospel is that God himself, the God who made everything, who's above everything, he came in the flesh and he suffered. Which is radical enough, but even more, the claim of the Christian faith is that he suffered for sins against him. That is utterly surprising. The surprise of suffering is that God shared our suffering, which leads us to our next point, the sharing of suffering. The reason we know I started out with Matt Teague's story and Nicole's cancer is the surprising behavior not of them, but of their friends. Sometime after the diagnosis, Matt's best friend, Dane, came to visit, and he ended up not leaving. He left everything, a life, a job, a girlfriend in New Orleans, to come to Fairhope, Alabama, where the Teagues lived, and he moved in to help Matt and Nicole. He did everything, laundry, cooking, parenting. With Dane, Matt could take Nicole to the hospital and stay with her for hours or weeks. Dane came to share the suffering of cancer and did not leave. You see, the surprise is the sharing. There's a great movie made out of this story um, called The Friend. And, but, but still, even though it's called The Friend, it's surprising, right? Friends just don't do that. Friends don't leave everything they have to come move in and help you deal with your suffering. They don't leave their lives to come full-time share your suffering. But however beautiful and right and true Dane's sharing of suffering is, it's actually an imperfect illustration of what Jesus has done for us. That he shares our sufferings. That he is like Dane. He moves into our house and says, how can I help? Let me take your suffering upon myself. Now Christ's sufferings atone for the guilt of our sin. We know that. We know that. But it also says that he carried our griefs and our sorrows. That's what Isaiah 53, 4 says. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You see, the cross deals not only with our sin and guilt. It deals with our sorrows. That what we weep over, Christ has carried to the cross. There's a great, um, there's a great quote by John Mark McMillan in this song. He says, I've got no answers for heartbreaks or cancers, but a Savior who suffers them with me. Singing goodbye, Olympus. The heart of my maker is spread out on the road, the rocks, and the weeds. He's saying this is different than like the Greeks and the gods. Olympus, apart from our suffering. Here is a God who gives us his very heart. But What does that mean? What does this mean for us? The Lord is with us. This is really actually just a prelude to what I think Peter is saying in verse 13. You see, verse 13 is not primarily about the Lord sharing our suffering, but actually it's about us sharing His suffering. Look at verse 13 again. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Now, what does that mean? Whatever it means, it can't mean that Christ... Sufferings are not sufficient. The New Testament is unequivocally clear that, that Christ suffered for us once for all, that, 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 that our guilt is wiped away. It's also clear, though, that Christians are called to suffer for Christ. Which is exactly what Peter explains in verse 14 and 16. Look, if you're insulted for the name of Christ... Or verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. So sharing Christ's sufferings is suffering for him, on his behalf. His behalf. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace back in the the 19th century, he has this great uh, essay called The The School of Suffering. I'm going to read you a quote from it. How much better to be called the honor of experiencing a measure of Christ's sufferings. A cup was put into his hand on our account, and his love engaged him to drink it for us. The wrath which which it contained he drank wholly himself, but he left us a little affliction to taste, that we might remember how he loved us, and how much more he endured for us, and he will ever call us to endure for him." Newton is saying that that Christ suffered absolutely for us. And yet there is this suffering that that he calls us to, to share his suffering with him. But suffering is so culturally repulsive, so counterintuitive, it's worth asking, like, why? Like, really, you're calling me to suffer for Christ? Like, I, I don't want to do that. So how do we become people that share Christ's sufferings, especially if we're fearful or timid? Well, like in this very Dane, I actually think that sharing suffering is a natural part of human existence. A middle-aged woman caring for her mother who has Alzheimer's is sharing suffering. A, son, a father with an autistic son who patiently researches how to best care for his son, that's a sharing of suffering. A husband who invites his wife to speak her heart. A friend who brings over a meal after a hard week, work week. To share suffering is an act of love. And we do it, or we should do it, every day. In fact, if anything reveals our love, it is our willingness to suffer. If anything reveals our love, it is our willingness to suffer. And we've seen Christ's love in his willingness, not only to suffer, but to actually suffer for us. And we've been thinking of Dane as a symbol of Christ. But what if... What if we're called to be damned for Christ? Right? What, if, what if Christ is calling us to take up his sufferings, to move in with him, to take up his heart and his kingdom, which is actually what he does? So here's a question for you. Do you love Jesus enough that you share his heart, his sufferings? I, I want to invite you to ask yourself that. And actually, even more importantly, to ask Jesus that. Jesus, do I love you enough to suffer? We suffer for love, yes. But how much love do we love Jesus with? But I actually think that love is the key to understanding this call to rejoice in our suffering. You see, love gives way to joy. Love is the joy in suffering, right? Dane's joy was that he could help his friends was that he could share their suffering and it was joyful to him but there's more you see if we share Christ's sufferings we will also share his joy and his glory Verse 13 again rejoice saints of ours you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed What Peter is saying is that if you share now, there's going to be this other share, this share of joy and glory that's coming to you, which only makes sense, right? Investors who've been with the company from the beginning, they've put down, they've suffered with the company, they've been through the the real downs. If that company really makes it, if it succeeds, those investors are going to be the ones who experience the glory and riches, right? They have a share in the company. Sharing sufferings are the investment which will reap joy and glory. So it's future, this joy and glory, but it's also present. He says in verse 14, if you are insulted in the name of Christ, you are blessed. That word blessed is the same word that Jesus used over and over in Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. And it means happy, joyful, flourishing. These are the people that are happy, truly happy. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now this is a when he says the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, it's actually taken from Isaiah 11:2, which is what our call to worship today is from. If you look back if you turn your paper over, you'll see it says, "The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon the Messiah." In other words, the very same spirit that is on Jesus, when we are insulted, when we suffer for Christ's sake, that that spirit descends upon us, and that we have the very spirit of Christ's glorious presence upon us. God's spirit is with the persecuted in a powerful and profound way. The first martyrdom for Christ comes in the Bible in Acts 7. And as Stephen is killed, it says that he gazed into heaven. Well, first of all, it says, he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Do you see that? Holy Spirit and glory come and rest upon Stephen. Why? Because he is suffering for Christ. You see, the surprise is, is that when we share Christ's sufferings, a spirit-filled glory and joy is our share. When we share Christ's sufferings, a spirit of glory and joy is our share. Now, it's just our last point. The sharing of, or the sanctifying of suffering. The sanctifying of suffering. Take out that sharing, put sanctifying there. There is another joy. Sanctifying comes from suffering. It purifies. Now, in verse 12, it calls it a, a, a fiery trial. Now, this is a reference to the refiner's fire, and Peter's actually this in chapter 1. This is First Peter 1, 6 through 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying is that your faith is far more precious than gold, and the way, the same way that gold is refined is through fire, through this smelting process, is the way that our faith is refined through fire, through suffering. Um, gold ore, which is found in the earth, is a composite of all sorts of, of different chemicals. When you look at raw gold, it doesn't really look like gold. Uh, there 's all sorts of other things there, in order to, to get the gold out or to purify it, it takes great heat a thousand over a thousand degrees Celsius, and all this pressure which breaks down the ore and separates out the impurities, and the impurities rise to the, surp- the surface where they can then be skimmed off and The same is true of faith. Suffering is the fire, the pressure that God uses to purify us, to make us pure and holy. This is what sanctifying means. It means that we're being made more pure and holy. Now, there's a secular version of this, right? right. Resilient is a really hot word in our culture right now. We, we love resilience, right? Hardships, we know, make us resilient. After a workout, we feel stronger. Some of us feel stronger. Some of us feel terrible. Um, and there is a spiritual parallel, right? There is a spiritual parallel with vital differences. You see, trials prove the genuineness of our faith. They reveal what we believe in our core. When things get hard, we either go back to God or we go somewhere else. Trials reveal our hearts, which is why they're called a test. It's a test whether we were genuine. And that's super important data for us. When we can, in retrospect, see faith coming out of us, it is affirming that God's work is at work in us. Or if we see a lack of faith in our trials, we come back to God and repent. Testing is a part of life with God. It is His love for us. That's the reason he tests us. He shows us our hearts. And so when trials come, do not succumb to self-pity or victimhood or anger or bitterness. That is not the fruit of the Spirit. It is maturity to recognize sufferings and trials as from the Lord. Opportunities to be faithful to him, to share his suffering and his glory. Now, let's look at verse 17. He says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The Bible speaks of a judgment that is coming at the end of time. And it uses the metaphor of fire, actually, for that judgment. It's a judgment needed for justice' sake. Every person and every deed will be judged. Even Christians They're in Christ, yes, but they too are judged. But what Peter is saying here is that ultimate judgment has begun with the church. The Lord is sanctifying his people, purifying them with judgment. So there will be less judgment for them in the final judgment. In other words, you can't really choose when you're going to go through the... You can't really choose about going through the judgment of God, the fire of God. You're going to do it either now or then. And yet, if you do it now, in faith, in faith, if Christ has suffered, if you believe that Christ has suffered for you and with you, this this fire of judgment, of these trials that come upon us, actually are quite different. Edmund Clowney, a, uh, a pastor and theologian, he says, the fire of judgment that will come when Christ comes, already burns in the sufferings that Christians endure. Yet, how different is the purpose of the fire in God's house from the fire of the last judgment? Fiery trials are not easily endured, but testing does not destroy us, it saves us. The testing saves us because God uses it to take away those harmful and noxious chemicals, these instincts and sins within us. The promise of our sufferings... The promise of our suffering, um, how firm and foundation is an old hymn. I love this verse. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you, your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. That is the hope of us. Our sorrows are actually sanctifying us, blessing us. And then... Peter ends in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. He, says, he ends with saying, hey, trust in the Lord. He is faithful. That's the ground. His faithfulness is the ground for our faithfulness. Now, let me clarify something here, because faithfulness in trial is trust and dependence. Right? This is another difference in the secular, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Trials, as a Christian, they do produce endurance, but it's through dependence and trust. Sanctification is actually a progressive process of recognizing how weak we are without Christ. And it's a process of becoming stronger by becoming weaker. Remember, this is about sharing life with Christ. We are sharing his sufferings and glory. Sanctification is not these, these trials are not about you proving yourself. They're about you actually coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, help me. That's what trust is. Trust and faith. Here's the bottom line. And this is good news. This is joyful news. Listen to this. Every trial, every suffering that you encounter in this life is given to prepare and perfect you for the joy and glory coming. That Whatever it is in your life, it's actually meant for your good. It's going to end with you being more beautiful and more glorious, just like your Savior. So I want to end with um, an application, two applications. First, preparation. I want to invite you to ask your heart. No, don't ask your heart. Ask Jesus, do I love you enough to suffer for and with you? And listen for Jesus' answer. The great reformer, Martin Luther, insisted we cannot suffer with Christ until we have accepted the benefits of Christ's suffering for us. You see, we love because he first loved us. And we suffer because he first suffered for us. So if there's an unwillingness you find in your heart, and that's evidence that somewhere you don't believe the gospel. You don't believe that he actually has suffered for you. Now, Peter has primarily been speaking of suffering as encountering persecution for being a Christian. And he's writing to prepare the church for suffering. We actually have no concrete evidence that Peter's original audience had suffered in soul for Christ, but within a decade and a half, they certainly are going to be. The Roman Emperor Nero would start persecution of the Christians within two decades of Peter's writing. But Peter's word to us is be prepared. Prepare yourselves. Prepare yourselves. And we can, even if if we're not being persecuted by Christ right now, there are ways that Christ is calling us to share in His sufferings, to witness to His name. Perhaps Christ is calling you to speak of him to your neighbor, your boss, your coworker, your family member, even if you might insult, suffer insult. Perhaps Christ is calling you to publicly identify with Him, going by the name Christian. Listen to the promise again, verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. But prepare yourself for any and all suffering. Here's, here's my hope for us as a church, that in whatever, whatever years God has me here at In double Grace, I want to do my best to prepare you for whatever suffering is going to come. And it will come. We all have friends who got that diagnosis of cancer, and they weren't ready for it. It devastated them. Divorce. Same. What our goal is, is to become prepared, to be ready for suffering, so that when it comes, we are not surprised. But that leads me to the second application, which is consecration. Again, if we're just taking Peter's words... To, to refer only to the narrow circumstances of being persecuted from Jesus, we might be tempted to say, this doesn't apply to me, right? I'm not being persecuted. But that's too limiting. Because God wants all of our suffering. In fact, just as God sanctifies our sufferings, he calls us to sanctify our sufferings to Christ. What do I mean? What does it mean to sanctify our sufferings to Christ? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul speaks with thorn in the flesh. It was possibly a a physical ailment. And listen to what Paul says about this, this suffering. He says, I will boast gladly with joy of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That may rest is the same word for the spirit resting on us. What he's saying is I'm taking my weakness, my suffering, and I'm giving it to Jesus that he might take it and make it beautiful and glorious. That's what we're called to do with all of our suffering, is to consecrate it, to sanctify it to the Lord. We see that. We see this all through the Psalms. So how might we consecrate suffering? Again, the Psalms give us a liturgy. First, we name it to God. We name the suffering. It could be a physical ailment, relational conflict, isolation, loneliness, betrayal, a painful family situation. And I want to invite you so often we don't name our suffering to the Lord. It just, it just, it's like just a a noise is on in the back of our brain and we just worry and worry so much about it. But to name it is powerful. Second, we elaborate on the pain. The psalms wax eloquently on the spectrum of anger and grief. They are not stoic. the, The psalms are emotionally intelligent to the nth degree. It names the suffering, and it tells why it is agony. You are invited to do that with your God. You're invited to write it in your journal, to scream it in your car, to cry and weep, to sing it out. Third, name your God. You see, he's a rock. He's a fortress that in the midst of suffering, he is not moving. He is a defensive mother bird that protects her young. He is the counselor. And in fact, he bottles each and every one of our tears. Fourth, we keep going. We keep walking in suffering. Suffering is not an excuse to shut down. We have to keep going. Even if it's at a crawl, we keep moving towards the Lord. Fifth and finally, we look for glory and joy. You see, the God that surprised everyone, it turns up in suffering. The, he is around the corner in our suffering. He is always around the corner and look for it. Do you have eyes to see his joy and his glory in the midst of the suffering? Because, friends, when we share Christ's sufferings, a spirit-filled glory and joy is our share. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I know there are many in this room that are suffering deep, deep sorrow. Father, would you, would you invite us to take you as our refuge and our solace. Thank you, O Lord, that Jesus died for our sins and our sorrows. And we pray, O Lord, that we would taste your joy and your glory, that you would make us a people not surprised, a people who could actually endure suffering for good and for joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.